Howdy y'all, and welcome to The Great State of Innovation, the podcast of Texas Innovators with me, your host, Cole Carpenter, and I will be joined by my co-host, Judge Gwynn, where we will cover innovation happening in the ninth largest economy in the world, the great state of Texas. This episode is brought to you by Integrity HR Management, the premier professional employer organization of Texas. Integrity HR Management makes modern-day HR simple for your business. Let the professionals remove your headaches and help you get back to doing things that matter. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Great State of Innovation, the podcast of Texas Innovators. It's me, Cole Carpenter, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Judge Gwynn. Today, we have an awesome, awesome episode for y'all, we are sitting down with Morris Denton, the CEO of Texas Original Compassionate Cultivation, the only Texas-built and owned medical cannabis operator in the state, and we're working to make the highest quality medical cannabis a Texas tradition. Texas Original is driving the evolution of Texas's cannabis industry through its advocacy and developing treatments to provide relief for potentially millions of Texans. Morris, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. We greatly appreciate it. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks, Cole. Uh, Judge, uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so to start things off, just I would lo- we'd love to hear your story about how you got into medical cannabis and, and the why behind what you do. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it, it, it's a long and windy road, which means it's a long and windy story. But, you know, basically, I've, I've spent, you know, 30 plus years, um, you know, in the business world. Uh, a lot of it in the, in the technology space, um, but also quite a bit in, in a variety of other, you know, industries doing a a bunch of different things from a business perspective, um, and had watched, uh, from afar as different states took on cannabis legislation, um, you know, and, and when, when Texas passed Senate bill 339, back in 2015, which feels like, you know, uh, a a decade plus ago, Um, you know, it enabled a business like ours to exist, but nobody really knew whether or not Texas was going to move along uh, in any kind of a fashion like other states had. You know, back then, I think there were 10 states or 12 states that had some kind of legal cannabis framework. Uh, largely just medicinal at that point in time back in 2015. But I had traveled around quite a bit, um, you know, to other states that were further along than Texas was and had seen um, the impact of what a cannabis industry had on a state, on a region, on a town, on a city, on people, et cetera. And, you know, uh, knew that there was going to be or, or, or thought that there could be a potential business opportunity that would exist in Texas if Texas, you know, could move from what was at the time a very narrowly crafted uh, market, meaning it was only for people that had intractable epilepsy. And you could only produce a very specific type of medicine that was a high CBD, low THC medicine. And if you got a license uh, at that point in time, which obviously we did, um, but, you know, if the if the market didn't expand, then you would really have a license just to lose money in perpetuity. And so, you know, we had to come to grips with whether or not we thought Texas would have the political courage to expand over time. And so I spent a lot of 2016 
uh, doing my own sort of homework and diligence on the state of Texas and on cannabis and on, you know, whether or not I thought uh, we could create a business that could uh, be something that would be interesting from a business perspective. Um, and then ultimately, of course, we made the decision to, to jump into it and, uh, and we're fortunate enough to win one of the three licenses back then. So, you know, for me, it's been, it, it's been, a it, it's been a real interesting journey because, you know, you go from a, from a, you know, an environment like in technology or in supply chain or in sports and marketing entertainment or sports entertainment marketing or what have you. And those are pretty structured, you know, old industries that have, you know, a, a sense about them, have a structure about them, have a have a way about how those businesses operate within those industries. And then you come into a market like cannabis, which has none of the structure. Um, it, it doesn't have the same regulatory framework from state to state. Each state is completely different. And when I say completely different, I mean in every possible way different. Um, you know, and you try to apply what you learned uh, through the school of hard knocks into a much more difficult and punitive school of hard knocks. And, you know, the cannabis industry is a very challenging industry in order to compete and in order to win. Um, and so it's been a, you know, it's been a five, we've, we've, we've now been in business for five years and, it, and it's been a, you know, it's been a real roller coaster over those five years, but we're now in a very good position um, as a business um, on the precipice here, hopefully of additional expansion in the upcoming legislative session. And, you know, um, are, are, are very fortunate to, to have the team that we have in place and the opportunity still in front of us. For sure. Yeah, it sounds like a, a long road. And you know, at the time when y'all were getting in, it was, uh, you know, the wild, wild west in a way. And, um, and I think even to this day, a lot of people don't even know that Texas has a medical cannabis program. So, um, but what was that process like for y'all to become licensed under the Compassionate Use Act? Was that a, a difficult and long trial or what, what was that like? It was, you know, so first of all, just to give you some insight into the application process, you know, during, during 2016, when I was doing my homework, it was in that period of time that the state announced that the Department of Public Safety was going to be the regulator. Right. And uh, within the DPS, there's a group called the Regulatory Services Division, which you know, gets responsibility to regulate a lot of the higher profile programs, right, um, that have some measure of volatility or perceived volatility to them. And, and the RSD within the DPS has a well-earned reputation for being an active and engaged regulator, which basically means that, you know, they're, they're, they're involved, right? They're, they're asking questions. They're coming out to see you. They're they're doing inspections. They're doing surprise inspections. You know they're they're staying on top of things. And and you know they have been um, a um, a great regulator from our perspective because um, because it's you know I think that they they view their role as being a facilitator as in, in a in a relationship and where you know, where it's a two-way street, right? Where we can give them feedback, they can give us feedback, we can collectively look for ways to explore and expand and improve the program within the bounds of what the state wants. But, you know, during 2016, when, when I was doing the homework and we found out it was the DPS that was going to be the regulator, you know, I was also looking at things to, to try to determine what would create, you know, a point of differentiation for us from, a, from you know, an application process. We were one of 43 
businesses that applied for what ended up being three licenses that were awarded. And our application was, you know, 300 plus pages long. It was wow. essentially a, you know, a business in a three ring binder. You know, you, you pour water on it, you put it in the microwave, you set it on, you know, high for five minutes and out pops this business basically, you know? So, I mean, it's obviously a lot harder than that, but when we got the call on May 1 of 2017 that we had won one of the three licenses, they also informed us now, they said, okay, great. Now that you've got your provisional license, we want you to stand up your facility and have it ready and operational by September 1 of 2017. So they gave us four months wow. um, to, to basically build out a vertically integrated facility. And, you know, anyone that has any knowledge of the cannabis industry knows that building out a vertically integrated facility in four months is, um, well, today it's impossible. You know, it's basically impossible today. Um, and back then it was almost impossible. Um, and, and so, you know, after we got the call, we hooped and hollered and congratulated one another for literally 30 seconds. We then just kind of looked around at each other and said, oh boy, we got a lot of work. We got a lot of work to do. And so, you know, we put our heads down and, and we got after it. We, we got our facility. Uh, we had our construction team. We had our floor plans. We had our security diagrams. We, you know, we had everything that we needed from the application. But, you know, unlike the just pour water on it and watch it grow, you actually had to roll up sleeves and put in all the elbow grease and work the, you know, the 80-hour the weeks to, to get the facility to the point where it was ready to operate. And the way that the rules work is, you know, even though, you know, if you're, a, if you're operating in a vertically integrated state, it basically you it basically means that you do everything from seed to sale. Okay. But within that framework, there's really five different businesses that are distinct and unique and other States like Oklahoma or Colorado or California, they don't have vertically integrated markets. They have distributed markets where you can have a cultivation license. You can have a dispensing license. You can have a manufacturing license, you can have a testing license, you can have a transportation license, you can have a testing license, et cetera. You can have, you know, five or six different license uh, sort of vertical industries under a cannabis industry in these other states. In Texas, it's all under one license. And so, you know, when we started to build the facility, we asked the DPS, is it possible for us to start on the cultivation side? Because... You know, if you get cultivation up and running and you plant your seeds, you know, you've got 90 to 120 days before you have a harvest. So that would give you 90 to 120 days to go start building out the next phase, which would be extraction and refining. And then from there, it goes to manufacturing. Then it goes to packaging and testing and then ultimately to dispensing. But the DPS said, no, 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 you have to have everything completed 100% before we'll give you your final license when you can plant your first set of seeds. So we had to build out everything from the beginning uh, and have it completely uh, evaluated and approved by the DPS. And so we got our final license. We would have had it earlier, uh, but a little thing called Hurricane Harvey hit and it set back our construction, not our construction on our facility, but on 
the concrete driveway into our facility. And so that delayed it a little bit, but we got our final license on October 31 of 2017. We planted our first set of seeds that afternoon. We had our first harvest in um, mid January and we sold our first medicine on February 8th of 2018. So, you know, it's, um, it is not for the, you know, this industry and especially this industry in Texas is not for the, uh, for the timid, you know, or for the uh, uh, uncertain or for those that, you know, lack persistence or perseverance or patience. You know, you got to have all those things. You got to have all those things in spades because it's just a real complicated business to run. Uh, yeah. uh, but, you know, the rewards are significant. Not, And I'm not talking about the financial rewards. OK, those those hopefully over time will come, but those are long-term goals from a business perspective. Right. You know, what I'm talking about is producing medicine that changes people's lives um, and, and seeing the impact of the work that you, uh, uh, the, the work that you've committed to and, and done and then, and then what you create on the back end of that and how it's changing people and transforming their lives is, is kind of the ultimate benefit. Yeah, I can only imagine how how proud you felt on on February eighth when that first uh, dosage was was handed out. That's that's amazing. Um, that story is, I you know, I wouldn't have even thought about the amount of perseverance it, it took y'all to to get where to where y'all are today. That's that's amazing. Thank you for that insight in, into that process. And um, before we get into the thick of things, I I want to quickly like kind of ask you to lay out the uh, legislation, like the current legislation or new updates. Uh, since y'all kind of launched that have kind of shaped the compassionate use act in Texas and as well as like qualifying conditions, the THC cap. Yeah. If you could dive into that for us, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So, you know, going, going way back when into, you know, a different, a different time, right. I mean, it was 2015 that Texas passed Senate bill 339, um, which called for uh, uh, one qualifying condition, which was intractable epilepsy and then a product, that could contain no more than 0.5% by weight THC and no less than 10% by weight CBD. Mm. So it was a 20 to one ratio, meaning 20 parts CBD to one part THC ratio product, um, which, you know, the only product that we could produce at that point in time was a tincture, um, which is essentially just, you know, sort of a bottle of oil, that has a tiny amount of THC in it that would be administered through a oral syringe, you know, basically a sort of a syringe without a needle in it that you would draw the oil into and then put into a cheek pocket or under the tongue that would then get absorbed into the bloodstream for, you know, relatively quick uh, impact. Uh, and so that was the, that was the first market that was there. 2017, you, you, you know that our legislature only meets every other year, an odd number of years. And so right. 2017 was the next window, but um, the state still had not, even when, uh, when the 2017 session opened in January, the state still had not awarded any of the licenses yet uh, based on the 2015 statute that was passed. Um, that didn't happen until May 1 of 2017. So there wasn't any change made to uh, the statutes via legislative action in 2017. Then in 2019, we had been operational for, you know, oh, a little more than a year. Well, no, not quite a year when the session started, but 
you know, a year or so into it when the session was getting into the, the thick of things, sort of in the in the March, April timeframe. And so we had a fair amount of data at that point um, in terms of the impact of this medicine on people with intractable epilepsy. There was also data that that was coming to fruition that that indicated that there were other conditions that had similar symptom profiles that would benefit. And, and so in the 2019 session, um, they added, um, they added uh, other seizure disorders plus MS, spasticity, uh, terminal cancer, and then this broader sort of thing called incurable neurodegenerative conditions and then they also removed the floor on the requirement of CBD. So instead of it being 10% CBD, they said, look, you still can only have 0.5% by weight THC, but now there's no longer the restriction, meaning you didn't have to just make a 20 to one ratio product. Um, and so the combination of those things opened the market up a little bit for us uh, coming out of the 2019 legislative session. Uh, and then in 2021, again, you know, every opportunity that we get to go in front of the legislature, you know, we view it as an opportunity to educate, inform, and hopefully persuade. And, and, and we don't do that by testifying ourselves. You know, we do it by letting doctors and, and most importantly, patients tell their stories, right? And so uh, as the market continued to grow, then that just meant that, you know, the number of doctors in the program grew and the number of patients grew. And so in 2021, you know, we had another crack at it. And, um, and in the 2021 session, we had a really good bill that came out of the house um, with almost unanimous support that, took the THC by weight from 1% to 5% and then added all forms of cancer, not just terminal, PTSD and chronic pain. Um, and that came out of the house. And, you know, if you guys remember from your social studies classes back in middle school or whatever, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to go through both chambers, the lower chamber and the upper chamber in the legislature and you got to pass, you know, through a rigorous process um, and, and, you know, and that process in Texas, you know, is, is really set up to kill bills. It's not set up to pass bills. Right. You know, you look at the number of bills that get presented in a legislative session in any biennium and it's, you know, you, you'll have, you know, for every one bill that gets passed, you'll have four or five bills that will fail, basically, are the odds in Texas. And, and so we had, a, we had a great bill that came out of the House. It was written by Representative Stephanie Click, who's a Christian conservative nurse out of North Richland Hills, you know, suburb of the Fort Worth area. She was the woman that was instrumental in getting the original Senate Bill 339 passed, which was originally authored by Kevin Eltai. Um, but anyway, she, she got it passed uh, in 2015. She also had the bill that was written in 2019 passed. And so this was a bill that she got out in 2021. It came out of the House, got referred over to the Senate, but sat in the Senate for a long, long time. And finally, um, the lieutenant governor, um, you know, watered the bill down. He removed 
uh, chronic pain as a condition. And then he dropped the THC level back to where it was from 5% down to 1%, basically. Um, so, you know, um, it was progress. It wasn't what we wanted, um, but it's what we got, you know, and sometimes, sometimes you don't get what you want. You don't get what you deserve, you, you know, but you get something. And so we got, we got positive momentum coming out of the 2021 session. Um, and, and, our, and the market started to expand coming out of the 21 session. It was the, that legislation that passed, by the way, it passed unanimously out of the Senate, 31 to zero. Right. Yeah. And, and the Senate is a Republican controlled Senate. So this isn't, this isn't, you know, a bunch of liberal Democrats that are passing this legislation. This is a Republican controlled conservative legislature that overwhelmingly supports the forward growth and progress of medical cannabis in the state. And so, you know, coming out of that, that legislation then became effective September 1. And our business has grown and the industry has grown. And, you know, we went from probably about, you know, seven or 8,000 total patients in the program to now just under 30,000 total patients in the program, um, you know, in less than a year. So, you know, there's been good growth as a result of that legislative action. And, and now we're looking at uh, coming back into um, coming back into uh, the 2023 session, um, where where we're going to hopefully get what we had originally intended to get, which is chronic pain um, and a you know either a lift on the cap or a removal altogether of the cap on THC, which will enable you know a lot more Texans who frankly deserve safe and legal access to medical cannabis under the care of a doctor. Uh, to be able to get safe and legal access to medical cannabis under the care of a doctor. Yeah, and I, I think that was a really important point you brought up, Morris, that, you know, it's not just, a, you know, a, you know, one side wants this and the other side's pushing back. I think there was a there was a report last week of a roundtable that Governor Abbott set out, and he acknowledged the need for change in Texas cannabis laws. And I think after that, he said that, you know, that but it won't come anytime soon, despite the fact that I think you know sixty or seventy percent of Texans support medical legalization. I know a slightly lower number supports recreational. So I think it's really important you touch on that that it's not just one side. And and as you said, there's a ton of Texans everywhere that you know desperately need this access to care. And you know, thankfully through the work y'all are doing, and hopefully through the work of our podcast and other other media, we can kind of decrease those stigmas and kind of get the real information about cannabis out there. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's the hope. I mean, look, the, you know, the, all the polls that are coming out that are, that are very interesting, you know, are, are compelling for the broad and bipartisan support of medical cannabis. We've also conducted, we've been also, uh, we've also been able to insert a couple questions into some polls that were focused on Republican primary voters. Okay. These are, this is the hardcore Republican uh, core base, right, that, um, that Governor Abbott and the Lieutenant Governor um, really focus on. Because in, in many ways, you know, the fight for leadership within the state of Texas um, right now is dominated by the Republican Party. And so, you know, while these bipartisan polls are interesting, um, what's more compelling are the um, very focused Republican primary voter polls. And so we, we inserted two questions uh, into a very recent 
in April, very recent Republican primary poll. And the first question was, do you favor or oppose allowing doctors to prescribe medical cannabis for people with serious medical conditions? Um, and the number, the percent that favored was 63%, and the percent that was opposed was like 25%. Okay. So, I mean, that's a big, big spread. 63% favor a broader medical cannabis program among Republican primary voters. We then asked another question, and that second question that we asked was, do you favor or oppose allowing physicians in Texas to prescribe medical cannabis as an alternative to opioids for those suffering from chronic pain? And the response there, 72% favor and only 19% oppose. Wow. But that's a huge spread. And, and that, that, you know, that poll right there, those two questions right there indicate overwhelmingly positive support for medical cannabis on a very broad basis and more specifically for medical cannabis to help us with this opioid, just absolute epidemic that Texas is facing. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, you know, thank you for, you know, some of that insight, Morris. And I think that's like you're saying, it's really compelling. You know, you just kind of have to put into terms that they understand sometimes, right? And that they can, they can observe and, you know, tie it back to the opioid pen epidemic. And I don't think many sides, no matter what side you're on, you can ignore that and, and kind of its detriment. So can you kind of break down, um, you know, for any Texans that may be eligible for Texas original, but are kind of unsure to take that first step, you kind of break down the, the patient experience for us, you know, from starting from the pickup of the prescription, you know, to kind of monitoring, you know, their monthly, monthly use and everything. Well, let's, let's start even earlier than that. Let's start with a person that may not be in the program that, you know, that is curious about whether or not they would qualify. The first thing that they need to do is they need to go to our website, which is texasoriginal.com. And, you know, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a tab that we have, a link, so to speak, that says uh, get a prescription or find a doctor. I, I can't remember which. I'll look it up while we're on that. Then it'll take them to a form that they can fill out that comes to us. And within that, we'll be able to figure out, you know, if we think that they have a condition that would qualify. Then we can connect those individuals to a doctor that is in the compassionate use program um, that can then do a virtual telemedicine session with those people quickly, often same day um, or within a day or two uh, to get them qualified in the program. Once they're qualified in the program, then they'll have a prescription. They can call us. They can send us an email or they can go online and fill out a patient form where then they can say, hey, I'm, you know, my name's Morris Denton. Um, I got registered. My doctor is so-and-so. I've got a prescription. We'll ask a couple questions. We'll make sure that they are who they say they are. We'll validate that they've got a prescription. And then we'll set them up for delivery or they can come in and pick it up. And so depending on what their prescription is, um, you know, they'll have, a, they'll have a choice from a variety of different products that they can choose from. Uh, their doctor can be specific if they want, but often the doctors leave it to the patient to decide what type of product they want to consume their medicine. But the doctor will be very specific about, you know, hey, take X number of milligrams, Y number of times every day, right? 
it's, it's like dealing with any other form of medication that your doctor prescribes you. The doctor will write you a prescription. The prescription will go online. You know, then we as the dispensary will fill it. And then the patient can either receive it at their home through a delivery from us. They can come to one of our convenient pickup locations located throughout the state. We got about a dozen of them. Um, or they can come visit us uh, at our Austin uh, dispensary. And um, so they can come and pick it up at our Austin location. Or if they live in Houston, they can come pick it up at our new Houston Heights location, which opened on May 31st. Um, or you can get it uh, received at home through delivery. Oh, that's wonderful. And it really sounds like, Morris, y'all have made it as easy as possible, you know, for those eligible Texans to to use your products and to start getting the benefits. And I think that's it's really important that, you know, y'all are taking that extra step to to make sure that you're the ones kind of connecting them with the doctors, you know, because I feel like there's a lot of hesitancies, you know, in that process where maybe they they want your products and they have the the intention to use it, but they're a little hesitant to connect a doctor and everything. I think that's really cool how easy y'all make that process. And, you know, we talked about going all the way to the beginning, let's go further than that. And let's kind of, can you kind of explain the process on your end, Morris, and kind of what it, that medicine looks like when you grow it from, you know, seed to that prescription in somebody's hand? Well, we grow, you know, we grow, so we, we have different types of, of cannabis that we grow. We have, we classify them as three types. There's type one, which is high THC, low CBD. There's type two, which is equal parts CBD to THC. And then there's type three, which is low THC and high CBD. Since we make products that contain, um, whose end result are, you know, either high CBD to low THC ratios or the opposite high THC to low CBD, we grow all three types of, of cannabis uh, plants at our facility because, you know, at the end of the day, we're a manufacturing company, right? And, and what you want to do when you're a manufacturer is you want to try to get your inputs to, to most closely resemble what your output is going to look like in order to be the most efficient um, manufacturer that you can be. If you're, if you're very efficient in the manufacturing process, it means that, you know, you've got the least amount of, of waste, right, that, that you're producing, that the majority of what you're putting into inputs results in what the end product is, et cetera. So we grow all three types of cannabis that then goes through a harvest process after a, after a very, very specific uh, grow window, right? So most of our plants spend 30 days in propagation um, and then another, you know, uh, X number of days in flower before we then harvest it. It then spends about 10 days in a dry cure because when you harvest a cannabis plant, it's, it's about probably 75 to 80% water. And that water needs to be completely out of the plant before we take it through the extraction process. So we take it through a dry cure process. Um, and, and then we, we take the, um, you know, the flower from the plant and then we grind it into essentially, you know, very fine, almost like sand, uh, uh, like substance that then goes into an extraction process. That extraction process is, you know, essentially designed to, uh, you know, almost act as like a sort of a crock pot, if you will, where we're exposing that uh, feedstock to changes in pressure and temperature over a period of time in order to pull out 
what ends up becoming the, the, the first bits of oil, okay, from the plant, from the feedstock. And, and the first bits of oil that come out are highly viscous. You look at it, it's almost, it almost looks like sort of black and green and gold tar. And then from there, we, we add in a refining process that allows us to take that crude oil and turn it into, you know, isolate and distillate that then becomes um, infused into what our final products are, whether that final product is a tincture like we talked about earlier, or whether it's a lozenge that's essentially a hard candy, or whether it's one of our gummies uh, that we produce. Um, and then those are those go through a very strict quality control assessment process. We expose it to different environmental conditions um, before it becomes packaged into different size skews, right? So we've got 30 count, we've got 10 counts now, we've got 15 count gummies, you know, we got 60 count lozenges, 30 count lozenges, et cetera, and different size tinctures. So you know, all those then result in what our end products are for our consumers. And then, of course, we take everything through a rigorous testing process to ensure that there's quality, consistency, and purity in the products that we produce and that there aren't any byproducts that get into it. You know, because we're vertically integrated, we own 100% of our supply chain. Um, and so it makes it really um, difficult for things to sneak into uh, into the grow process or into the manufacturing process that could be unwarranted, but we test for all those things. So we test for microbials, uh, we test for heavy metals, um, we test for, you know, a wide range of, of, of things that could get there. And then we publish all of our test results online in COAs and make those available to our patients. Yeah, that's awesome. I uh, while you were going through that in my head, I was going visually through because I, I took a tour. I think uh, beginning of March of twenty uh, twenty, right before the pandemic started, and your facility was it was blowing my mind. Every every corner I went around, so that was awesome for breaking that um, that down. Thank you, Morris. I think that gives people great insight into like you know the process and also uh, what the final product, how that ends up in their hands, and. Uh, so while we're on that topic, I, w I was hoping you could dive into like the THC percentage and levels and the reason for use of THC in a medical scenario, like tapping into the endocannabinoid system and um, kind of also just relating it, how that compares uh, to other states' medical programs. Yeah, I mean, Texas has imposed a 1% by weight limit on THC in each of our products, right? And And I think the the... The original intent behind that was um, to limit, to somehow limit either the daily consumption that a patient could have or limit the amount of THC that a doctor could write a prescription to a patient for. But that THC cap really didn't accomplish either of those things. There isn't a limit that's imposed on a patient. We have we have patients that are taking, you know, 100 plus milligrams of THC a day um, because they have serious PTSD, yeah. um, or um, they're in a hospice situation and they're using it for quality of life purposes. Right. Um, or we've got patients that are battling really aggressive forms of cancer and. You know they're under radiation or chemo or what have you, and 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 the THC is helpful for them from a pain management perspective or from a wasting 
perspective because it helps them with their appetite or you know there's all there's all kinds of different use cases for for our medicine so the the 1% threshold really only creates uh, a problem for these patients because you know if you're consuming 100 milligrams of THC a day and and you're only able to to consume 1% of that uh, by weight, that means that you're consuming, you know, a thousand or more milligrams of something else yeah. on a daily basis. And, and oftentimes that something else is the carrying oil that we put into our tinctures or the pectin or gelatin or uh, tapioca that we put into uh, uh, our gummies or, you know, whatever other products we're putting into you know, our lozenges. And, and so, you know, for example, just on the tincture side, if somebody's consuming that much medicine, that means that they're often literally drinking cups of this oil every day. Yeah. So to just understand what that feels like, you know, go into your, into your kitchen and pull out some olive oil and pour yourself, you know, just a cup or just a teaspoon of olive oil and drink that and then multiply that times 10 or 15 and do that twice a day or three times a day, every day for the rest of your life. And that's essentially what a lot of these people are having to do in order to get to the targeted prescribed dose that their doctors are writing for them based on whatever condition or symptom they have. Yeah. And I right. So it's, it's, it's a real challenge. Now, you know, the, the, endocannabinoid system that you talked about, you know, is, is, you know, I'm not a doctor. And so I like to make things as simple as possible. But the way that I think about it is, is that the endocannabinoid system is essentially a sort of a network of receptors mm -hmm. that are within everyone's body. Everybody has an endocannabinoid system. And for those of us that are, you know, fortunate to be healthy and, and, um, and generally uh, of good health, you know, the, those series of receptors or those toggles are in the right sort of setup relative to who you are as an individual. But for those of us that suffer from some of these conditions, you know, you might have a receptor that's in the wrong spot in one area or a series of receptors that are in the wrong spot in other areas. And what cannabis can do is it can target those receptors and, and, and essentially move those toggles from one side to another to affect change. Yeah you know, and uh, change in your body. And, you know, we've had, um, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, we have thousands of patient testimonials uh, that, in, that include, you know, something like this. We had a, we had a young woman that came to us in, in um, 2017. This is before we produced, before we had our first medicine for sale. We, we met this young woman who at the time was 15 years old. When she was five, she came down with uh, epilepsy as a result of a high fever. And, um, and every day she endured hundreds of seizures a day. And her life was defined by what she couldn't do, right? She couldn't go to a normal school. She couldn't be without her parents. She couldn't go to summer camp. She couldn't go to the park without her family. She couldn't um, have sleepovers. Uh, as she got older and became a teenager, 
you know, she couldn't dream of getting her driver's license. Um, she, you know, couldn't dream of going to, to college. She was on so many different forms of medications. She had tried and failed all the medications. She was on the cusp of having brain surgery when, um, when they found our medicine, they found us and then eventually got on our medicine. And since being on our medicine, she's come off all of the other uh, uh, chemicals and pharmaceuticals. Uh, she only takes our medicine. She's been seizure free. She graduated from high school as valedictorian. Um, she got her driver's license and she's on an academic scholarship in the honors program at Texas A&M University. And in 2021, she was the youngest registered lobbyist in the state of Texas. This woman is phenomenal. And, you know, we've got thousands of stories that, you know, are like hers, where, you know, this medicine transforms people's lives, you know, and our vision as a company is to transform Texas through the power and the truth of medical cannabis. And, and we do that by letting people like Julia Patterson, who I just told you about, tell her story and let others like her tell her story. And it, look, it doesn't work for everybody, but no medication works for everybody, right? right? Um, this medication works for a lot of people. It works for a big percentage of people. Um, and, and, and yeah, there's more work that needs to be done to study it. And we as a society should be studying this. We should be allowed to do double-blind placebo clinical trials with tier one medical universities with federal funds. Yeah. Absolutely, we should be allowed to go do that. You know, because this plant um, has truth to it. And it speaks its truth through every encounter that it has with people. Um, and we as a society need to listen to that truth and we need to act upon that truth and we need to make changes based upon that truth and allow, you know, this plan and the medicine it creates to, um, um, you know, to frankly change its, uh, change public sentiment from being vilified to, to frankly being revered. Yeah. Sure. You just laid out a very compelling argument for, you know, those for policymakers to remove that, that THC cap and removing the kind of, uh, you know, barriers to efficacy of this powerful, powerful medicine. And for those of you listening, if you want to learn more about the endocannabinoid system, go check out the uh, American Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine. Uh, they have a lot of great medical studies in there kind of outlining the benefits and the ways to, uh, you know, kind of tap into the endocannabinoid system. So be sure to go check that out. So Morris, in, in closing, what, what's, what's needed to increase access to this program? Well, I mean, you know, what's needed is legislative change uh, in, in progress in Texas. You know, I mean, what I think needs to happen is that, you know, and there's, like I indicated earlier, there's overwhelming support within the Republican Party um, to expand the medical program. And, and that's what we're focused on. You know, I'm not talking about recreational markets right now. I'm talking about expanding the medical uh, program, allowing people that are under the under care of a doctor, uh, allowing the doctor based on his or her expertise, knowledge, training, education, um, you know, and frankly, Hippocratic oath um, to to do their to do the work, right? To 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 be able to say, hey, look, this person suffers from this symptom. Uh, I mean, doctors 
you know, people have symptoms, right? Like you and I, Cole, you know, we've got something going on. We go to the doctor. The doctor says, well, what are your symptoms? So, you know, um, then they're, they're going to diagnose and they're going to write down a condition, but they're going to treat your symptoms, right? So doctors diagnose conditions, but they treat symptoms. We need to let the doctors do their work where they can do that and, and make this market uh, independent of restrictions on conditions. Just let the doctor, if the doctor feels like a patient qualifies for medical cannabis, the doctor should be able to write a prescription for that patient, period, full stop. Right. Um, then we should remove the cap on THC so that we don't have the type of significant side effects, gastrointestinal issues um, that are affecting patients. Um, then, you know, frankly, we need to allow uh, businesses like ours to be able to store inventory um, throughout the state. Right now, if, if we have a patient in Amarillo, we're only allowed to keep inventory in our location in Austin. So, you know, we get a call from a patient in Amarillo, we're going to figure out a way to get it to them in Amarillo as quickly as we possibly can. Um, but that could take a few days. It could take a week, depending on what our delivery schedule and timeline is, uh, up into the Panhandle or down to the Rio Grande Valley or out to far West Texas and El Paso or Northeast or what have you. If we had the ability to store inventory in places throughout Texas, we could offer same day service, you know, to 100% of Texans. And by doing that, we would reduce the price of the medicine greatly. You know, we hear a lot about people complaining, oh, your prices are too high. Well, you know, there is no way for us to recover the cost of us doing business when we're required to deliver throughout the state of Texas without the ability to store inventory closer to where our patients live. You know, it's just a, there's a never ending expense line that only increases as new patients come into the program unless and until we can be more efficient. And because Texas has a very well-earned reputation as being business friendly, you know, let's ease on the regulations a little bit and allow us to store inventory closer to where our patients live and let us make those decisions based on business economics and economies of scale. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing insight. Um, Morris, thank you so much for that. Um, I think, you know, in the interest of time, I think that's that's all we have for us. But um, anything else you want to get into? Or do you want to touch on Bastrop or we can uh, discuss that? Later? No, I mean, we've got a new facility we're building out in Bastrop that'll be ready, you know, later this year. Um, you know, we'll be back. Uh, you know, we're working right now on, on, you know, working with legislators and their staff. You know, if, if people want to get involved and engaged, you know, my suggestion is, is that you, you, you get to know who represents you, right. um, you know, on a state level. Um, this is a state issue. Um, you know, while there are federal issues that are affecting the cannabis industry, this is very much a state of Texas issue. So, you know, figure out who your state house member is, figure out who your state senator is and send them letters, send them emails, call them, let them know, you know, where you stand on this issue and let them know, you know, hopefully that you want to see a broader, more expansive uh, medical cannabis program that, you know, treats all Texans favorably and equitably, uh, not just those that have specific conditions. But, you know, for all those that that, you know, think they deserve safe and legal access, let let your legislators know where you stand on that. Yep. Yes, sir.
Well, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time, Morris, and giving us insight into the Texas medical cannabis market and the uh, the future of it and where we where we are and where we're going. So thank you so much. We greatly appreciate it and are so happy to be able to you know, leverage such a message on our platform. So thank you for the opportunity. Hey, it's great being with you guys. Thanks for what you do. And, and uh, uh, I'll be listening, man. Appreciate you guys. Download the Texas Innovators app on the App Store and Google Play. Like and follow the TXI Facebook page linked in the description to keep up with innovation happening in the great state of Texas. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, innovation never sleeps.